we have some, some volunteers back at a table in the mall. Uh, would really love for, for those of you who, who maybe the Spirit of God might be moving on you in some way to say, is this something we should do? Uh, Safe Families Ministry is this phenomenal ministry that we have locally here. We've just started up, and, and it's an opportunity for us to intersect with people in our community who are at really desperate times and, and step in in a way that, that the foster uh, program is, is not exactly doing. These aren't paid opportunities. These are just ways for us to share a cold water in the name of Christ. There's, there's one story, in fact, of a woman who, who uh, is, is of a different faith and philosophy and worldview perspective than, than, than we would be, is single, is alone, has no support, no family, has a child, multiple surgeries planned over the next year, and we have a family who has stepped in, and she has met them, known them, and said, would you please take, take my kids while I'm in surgery over these multiple times, and you know what, you can take them to church too, that would be great. It's a fantastic opportunity, so if you would like to talk to someone, I know Carrie's gonna be at the table out in the back, please go see them. It's just a, it's a phenomenal way for us to be the body of Christ to our community. Let me real quickly invite our ushers to come forward and uh, take our offering for the week. If you're a guest, we don't ask you to give. Uh, if you're a Timberline family member, thank you though for uh, investing in our kingdom, uh, that, that we're a part of Christ's kingdom in that way. So ushers, we've already prayed. Um, you can go ahead and pass that. And while that's being passed, let me make one real quick announcement before we jump in here. Um, I know every single week I, I take, or my wife usually takes our, our four little kids and drops them off over in the Timber Kids area, and it's like insane back there if you've ever walked back there. And at the end of the night, we go pick them up. And um, one of the neat things that's been going on is that we, we have so many kids, like more kids than we expected coming on Wednesday nights, but we have more kids than we have helpers, which is, I guess, a good problem. If, if you would have it in your heart to say, I would love to, and you know, it doesn't have to be teach, you know, maybe that's your area. Some people step out of here like 10 minutes early and they just go help check out kids. So we have needs for just things like that. Maybe you just want to check them in and, you know, miss the first 10 minutes because, you know, I'm going to be praying and it's not that good anyway, so you, don't, you can miss it. But um, if, if, if you would be able to do that, we would love it. It would be fantastic. I know I love it when I walk back there and I, and I see all these fantastic helpers who, who are just doing a great job loving on my kids and, and all the others. So uh, we are in a series right now called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And in this series, we, we're walking through uh, different principles of, of uh, what it means to, to be emotionally healthy in, in our spirituality. And there's kind of a tagline that we've been, been using, which is, is this idea that it's impossible to be spiritually mature, something we, we, we all long for, while remaining emotionally immature. Let me say that again. It's impossible for you or for me, to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so what we're going to be doing is, is walking through these various principles. Let me throw up a couple slides here if I can real quickly. Um, I'm, I'm trying this whole uh, iPad reflecting onto the screen thing, so we'll see how well it works here this evening. Um, it might not work. Isn't that working? Did it change? Oh, there we go. This is a picture that, that, that we want to use throughout this series to talk about this idea that much of our life, if you think about an iceberg, typically 
10% of an iceberg is, is visible from the surface. You know, that's it. But, but 90% of, of what an iceberg is, is below the surface. And oftentimes, our, our, our methods, our models of discipleship deal with the top, what's above the surface, and then maybe go, I don't know, maybe you know, an extra 10% below. But, but, but there's this whole beneath the surface iceberg of who we are as people that is oftentimes left totally untouched by, by our pursuit of Christ, discipleship, apprenticeship of Jesus, whatever language we use for it. And so what we're doing is we're walking through a series. Let me put one more slide up here on the screen. We're walking through a series in, in which we're going to look at seven principles, and this comes from uh, Pete Scazzaro's book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, and we're really encouraging people if they would like to pick up the book, The Emotionally or Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I know a lot of you have got it. I've, I've, I'm seeing people walking around with it and reading it and having some great discussions. But these are the seven steps. And last week, Pastor Dick Foth talked to us about uh, looking beneath the surface, this whole idea of understanding that that I'm not just a spiritual being, I'm not just a physical being, I'm not just a volitional being, I'm, I, I, I'm a, an emotional being too. I have multi, I'm a multifaceted or multi-level being. And so as I attempt to bring all of myself before Christ, we, remember we sang the song like, I surrender all? Wait, what is all? Do I know what all is? Is it really all of me? Because what if there are parts of me that I thought were kind of, well, that's not spiritual, that's just you know, this or it's just that. But what if he, God really wants all in this process of spiritual formation in our lives? And so emotionally healthy people understand that th their past, and this is where we're going to go tonight, their past affects their present ability to do the greatest commandment. Do you remember what Jesus said the greatest commandment was? Remember he's asked, what's the greatest? What's it all about? And he says, Love the Lord your God. Remember, he lists everything, heart, soul, mind, strength, you know, everything, all of us. And seconds like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if that's the greatest call, what if, what if this was a, a potential obstacle to doing that? What if, what if because of my emotional health, I can read scripture all I want, I can pray, I can fast, I can have times of solitude, I can do all of these things that I think are spiritual, and yet why is it that when I go home, I still have this anger issue with my wife? Why is it that when I go into work, I still have all these unresolved issues in this conflict, and I, have, and I, you know, I, I don't want to address this issue? Reading another chapter of the Bible a day is not going to fix it. Praying a few more minutes is not going to fix it, because it's this emotional health issue that I might have. And so emotionally healthy people realize, both from Scripture, reading Scripture, which is what we'll look at tonight, as well as just life experience, that there's like a really intricate and complex connection between who I, Brent, am today and my past, where I came from. I am a result of my past. And, and, and while there are so many forces, I mean, think about all the things that, that have shaped you in your life, given, you know, given shape to who you are. I would suggest, almost without exception, the most powerful influencer of, of you and of me is your family of origin which is to say that the, the family that you grew up in, not just them, but the families that, that fed into that family and the families that fed into that family. That's what we mean when we talk about this family of origin, where we have come from. Um, there's, a, there's a song, a, uh, a country song out right now by um, 
Miranda Lambert, if you guys like country, if you know who this is. It's called The House That Built Me. Have you heard this one? And it goes like this. It's kind of a cool word. She says, um, I know they say you can't go home again. I just had to come back one last time. Ma'am, I know you don't know me from Adam, but these handprints on the front step are mine. Up those stairs in the little back bedroom is where I did my homework and learned to play guitar. I bet you didn't know that under the live oak, my favorite dog is buried in the yard. That's proof that this is a country song, right? Because there's always a dog that dies in country songs. She goes on to say, I thought if I could just touch this place or feel it, this brokenness inside me might start healing. Out there, it's like I'm someone else. I thought that maybe I could find myself. If I could just come in, I swear I'll leave, won't take nothing but a memory from the house that built me, right? The house that built me. Um, the first home that I, that I have any memory of, it was this blue tri-level in uh, North Loveland on West 28th Street. Uh, that's that's you know, my earliest memory growing up there. I, I was born at PVH here in Fort Collins, lived in Loveland until I was in second grade, and then, and then we moved away and uh, didn't move back until I was married. And uh, this, this last summer, I don't know, it was like two months ago or something like that, my, my dad called me and he said, hey, the, we call it the blue house. You know, there's the, the green house and the brown house and the blue house, you know, different houses we lived in. This is the blue house. The blue house is for sale. And see, we've driven by it like for the past, you know, it's been 30 years. I haven't, I haven't lived there for 30 years. And uh, he said, you know, the blue house is for sale. And, you know, we drive by and, oh, look how big the trees are. Oh, my goodness, look, those brown shutters are still in the window. That's, you know, that was marking my bedroom, and they're still there. And he said, it's for sale. And so, and so we called to see if we could, like, oh, we'd like to take a look at the house, you know, to purchase. We just want to get in and see it, you know, all the old, all the old memories. And, uh, well, we were, like, too late. I mean, it was off the market right away. Someone bought it. And, and so one day my mom and I were driving by. We said, let's just... Like, a guy's moving in. We see him literally carrying his stuff, and we said, like, let's stop by and see if he just, you know, let us go in. And so, and so we stop and, you know, you know, knock on the door, and, you know, there's kind of that weird, can I come in your house and look at it, which is just bizarre. But, but you know, you're so desperate. It's like, oh, this is so awesome. You know, I, I want to see the house that built me. That's, that so many of my memories are there. And so, you know, he let us in, and we're walking around. And the, and the crazy thing is, this family had not changed a whole lot. Like, if, if you know my mom, she's, like, she's a great interior decorator. She, and so, so much of the stuff she had up, now, it was cool back in like 81, not, you know, it hasn't been so cool now, but you know, there was this like metallic uh, wallpaper up that had like, almost like sand paper kind of stuff on it. It was just crazy looking. And there was like wood paneling and in the bedroom, there was still, they only had one roll of wallpaper. They were like short on wallpaper. So they did like a roll and then painted and then a roll and then painted and they put like, you know, corner wood up in between to make it, you know, look cool. And it was still there. Like all, all this stuff was there. It was so crazy. You know, uh, we were walking by the, uh, there's a hallway and there's a bathroom. We walked by, you know, my mom's like, I can picture you sitting on the toilet right in there. And I was like, stop, stop. And, you know, the guy I'm sure thinking we are total nuts. Um, but I, I loved this house so much, so much beauty came out of experiences. I, I mean, just memories just flood my mind of moments and times and birthday parties sitting at, you know, right in this spot and all these sorts of things. This, this house, in many ways, built me. But the reality is both great beauty and deep woundedness 
shapes who we are and, and comes from our family of origin. And I would suggest that this is a biblical theme. This isn't just something, this isn't sort of a psychology or, you know, a counseling concept. This is a biblical theme that goes right back to the very first stories. If you have your outline and you want to fill in the very first blank, it is the patterns of our family, the patterns of our families going back two to three generations profoundly impact who we are today. And again, that's in both beauty and in woundedness or, or brokenness. Uh, think, think for just a second about, you know, the, uh, when you hear the phrase patriarchs, have you heard that phrase before, the patriarchs in the Bible? Like, who do you think of when you hear the patriarchs? Abraham, what's his son's name? Isaac, what's his son's name? Jacob, right? In a, in a narrow sense, when the Jews spoke of the, the great patriarchs or our, our fathers of the faith, in a narrow sense, they meant Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay? Because this was, remember so many times God in the Old Testament would say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's referring to his covenant with them, to what he, how, what he was going to do through them to bless the entire world in that way. So if you go to the book of Genesis, there's a couple of people highlighted, a family here and there, but it's, it's, it's snapshots. The first family that we get to that, that really we see any sort of a, like a lifespan, one generation, the next generation, the next generation, would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in their lives. Uh, scholars refer to this as the, the patriarchal era of the Old Testament. So this is like Genesis 12 to 50. Okay, is what we're talking about, large portion of the book of Genesis. But what's interesting, let me give you a couple categories in which to think about this, this family line, the very first family, the great family, the one that we said, I am a, I'm a son of Abraham, the Jews would say. Think about character, okay? When it comes to character, um, was, was lying, if you know anything about this family, did, did deceitfulness become an aspect of the life the, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yeah. You see Abraham lying multiple times about his wife, Sarah, saying this isn't, this isn't her, willing to even, you know, let her be taken. Um, Isaac and Rebekah's uh, marriage, it's totally characterized by lies, and it almost grows in intensity because it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, almost every single relationship he has is characterized by deceit. His name means deceiver or, or heel grabber. That's what Jacob means. Now, his son, Joseph, remember, you know, the ten brothers, coat of many colors. The ten brothers sell him into slavery, deceive their father. You know, they go through the, the, the facade of a, of, of a mourning, of a wake, of a funeral, all this stuff. So, you look at this, this character decision of Abraham, and you see how it's, like, tracked down. And this is a major part of the story. It's like the author wants us to see what happens character-wise in a family when, when we let something go unchecked, okay? What about, say, another category, uh, a parenting? Uh, you, you, anyone here grew up in a family where, you don't need to raise your hand, favoritism was in the family, right? Who did Abraham favor? He had two sons, Isaac and, remember, Ishmael, right? Abraham favors Ishmael. The wife doesn't like it, makes Hagar and Ishmael leave. Um, Isaac has two sons, right? Jacob and Esau. He favors Esau. The mom favors. I mean, it's like you see this picture. 
why does Joseph get sold into slavery? Because his dad favors him, and years later, he, he favors the other son, Benjamin, the youngest one. It's like you see this destructive pattern of one parent who, who, who sets just a little bit more attention, a little more affection, a little more care on that one child over all the others and what it does. How about the category of marriage? Um, you know, Abraham has a child out of wedlock from his wife. Um, Isaac had a terrible relationship with Rebecca. Uh, Jacob had, had two wives, two concubines, constant poor intimacy. I mean, there's very, very poor intimacy in almost all of these. And how about this last category um, of, of, of siblings? Estrangement. I was talking to someone the other day who, who was going back to a, a, a parent had passed away, and, and they said, I, I have not seen my, my sibling in 30 years. 30 years. And this is the only thing that's hopefully going to bring it together. And it was a pretty good connection. And, and he, he was just telling me about just some of the messed up, broken stuff. that This is, this is his, his sister, his only sister. And he hasn't talked to her in 30 years. This estrangement of siblings in their family. And you see this where Isaac and Ishmael, which is Abraham's sons, you know, completely cut off from each other. Uh, Jacob fled his brother Esau. Remember after he deceived him? Uh, he knew that, you know, blood was going to be shed. Uh, didn't, didn't see him for years. Joseph completely cut off from his ten brothers until years and years later. So you see this idea that it's like so many things that are done. And, and again, I don't think once you have this perspective and you read this story, these aren't like tangential aspects. I think the author is trying to get us to see. Remember that whole Genesis 3 fall thing, rebellion? Look what happens. Look at the brokenness of families. Look at their ability to pursue God and how, how it, it's just so broken and messed up. Now, the cool part of the story is God's faithful when they're not, right? God's faithful in our lives when we're not. That's what's so awesome. But so many times, you know, as a parent, I don't know, if, you know how many of you are parents, but I mean, this freaks me out, you know, thinking about like, have you even wondered about like some small thing you said that's like a total side you know, comment, and your kid remembers it like four years later. And you're like, I don't even remember. I was a, before I had kids. I was a teacher, and I taught at a Christian high school. And there was, a, and it was a very, very conservative. You know, I'm like 24 years old, and uh, was teaching. And I remember that there was this one kid in particular who did not have a faith walk with Christ. Very intellectual, very sharp, and I was always hoping, like. You know, maybe I could have a big impact on his life. And he graduated, went away, joined the armed forces. Years later, I'm, I'm at home and I hear this, you know, he knocks on my door and, and I, you know, I open it up and, oh, you know, how, how are you? Come on in. And so, he, you know, he comes in and yeah, this, I've been on this tour and all this stuff. And he's got some tats on him. You know, he's got a couple over here, a couple over there. I said, man, good to see. And he said, Mr. C, because that's what, that's what he called me, Mr. C. And, uh, and he said, Mr. C, he goes, I got it. Because I think I asked him, I said, man, tell me about your tattoos. Like, oh, he goes, oh, I got one because of you. I was like, wow. Like, is it like a Bible verse? Because I was, I was a Bible teacher, you know. That, that's, no, no, no. Is it like something that I, like, you know, something profound I said or something like that? He's, oh, not really. No, no, no. I said, okay, what's it? And, he, and, so he, and so he pulls up his, his, his sleeve and he goes, I hope I can say this in here. If there's any kids playing. He goes, it's a naked lady riding a dragon. And I go, what? Are you talking about Mr. Cooper? You got that because Mr. Cooper? I was Mr. Cunningham, remember? He goes, no, no. No, Mr. Cunningham, because of you. And I'm just puzzled. I'm like, yeah. 
I mean, there's a dragon in Revelation, but I don't, there wasn't that. I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, don't you remember that time I asked you if you had a tattoo? And I go, no. <gasps> and all of a sudden, this moment came back to me of this smart aleck comment I made where he goes, hey, Mr. C, you have a tattoo? We were in, like, Old Testament talking about markings or something. And I go, yeah, Luke, I got a naked lady riding a dragon on me. He goes, really? And I go, no. That is the impact the Bible teacher has on the student. I mean, it crushes me. I seriously think about it, and I feel guilty to this day. I'm worried his parents will track me down. You know, it was just, it was awful. But I think, I think as we look at these stories in Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the dysfunction, the brokenness, the errors in judgment, the mistakes that are made, they're, they're almost just lack of understanding of what they're doing. I think the reason that God allows this to be recorded is to show us that we need to take a deep look below the surface of the iceberg to see who we are. Listen to how Paul talks about it, 1 Corinthians 10, 6, how he speaks of all that stuff, all that patriarchal stuff in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says this. Now, the context, he's speaking of Moses and Israel who, who walked after God, but they kind of blew it. They just kept failing. And he says, now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Isn't that interesting? He uses the word our ancestors in this passage. He's talking about this concept of looking at family of origin, where we've come from. Romans 15, 4, Paul also says, everything that was written in the past, he's speaking of Scripture, Old Testament, was written to teach us those things were written so that we could have hope. That hope comes from the patience and encouragement that the scriptures give us. See, unless we, unless we wrestle with and, and grasp the, the power that the past has on the present of, of who I am, um, I will just, I'm just going to replicate the same patterns. I'm just going to do the same things. It might intensify, it might be a little less, but it's going to be there. The same dysfunction will be there. Um, and, you know, here I think is even a bigger challenge as anything. If, if you came from a home which um, you felt loved, um, a home that was reasonably stable and, and whole, uh, it generally takes much longer to be willing to, to identify some of those behaviors um, that we would say they're not in concert with the family of God. I've got a friend who, who I meet on occasion, and, um, you know, I, we've talked about family stuff, and you know your concept of God, and how was that shaped by family, and, and it's like his, I mean, he had this awful relationship with a dad, he's passed away, it's just, it's like he knows how messed up his family of origin is. I mean, he's always, man, I'm always thinking about it, and talking about it, and wondering, and, and, and I was saying, I said, you know, I, I came from a great family, like, I, I had great parents, and uh, you know, sh oh, sure, there's problems, but no, it isn't everyone. And and I have this tendency to to not even look below the surface because I go, oh, you know, it was better than a lot. And I've heard, you know, I could tell you some horror stories, but see, that's just keeping. I still have the below the surface iceberg. It's all still there. I just don't know all of it. You know, this friend of mine at least knows it's there, and that's the goal of this: is this whole concept of perspective. Do I know? Because the reality is. Every family has been damaged, right? Every single one of us in this room descends 
from the family tree of Adam and Eve. Remember Genesis 3? We've talked about it a couple times. Think about this for just a second. Again, think about what the author is trying to get us to see, that this is the first explanation or descriptives of, of some of the consequences and the reality of a life lived unplugged from the creator of the world. He speaks of the intent of Adam and Eve as, as soon as they disobey God. You remember what, what they start doing relationally? They try to shield themselves or defend themselves from God and from each other, right? Right away, they move into this. And, and, and this aim of protecting themselves from God and others uh, manifests in a lot of different ways. Um, it, it could look like controlling. That ever go on in your house, in your family of origin, maybe now? How about fixing? I gotta make everything right. I feel this pressure to kind of make everything stable and, and fix it all. Or a fear. How about withdrawing, just pulling back, don't want to deal with that, hiding, um, ignoring things, denying that they're there. Uh, how about pacifying? Does that ever go on? What about, what about a sense of loneliness at times? Um, is, is there anxiety as a result of some of the relationship, relational dynamics in a home? Frustration? Is there any resentment that's been like slowly building in those relationships? Um, what about blaming? Uh, th all of these pieces are a result of this whole thing of being detached from God, and now this below the surface of the iceberg has all of these, and, and every family, no matter how good of a family you came from, has elements, places of brokenness, even if, if there are very various different places. Uh, Nicholas Walterstorff is a, uh, he's a philosopher. He's, uh, he, he's a professor at, at Yale University. He has a dual appointment there in like philosophy and religion. He got his PhD from Harvard. He's a believer. And listen to how he puts this. He says, no dimension of life is closed off to the transforming power of the spirit because or since no dimension of life is closed off from the ravages of sin. Let me say that again. No dimension of life is closed off to the transforming power of the Spirit. He's talking about all those layers beneath the surface iceberg, our lives. Because no dimension of life is closed off from the ravages of sin. If, if Genesis is true, if this is a true account, then there is not one part of who you are, not, not, not one shred, not one component or aspect, which is left untouched by the consequences of rebellion or sin, being disconnected from God. Not one aspect of who we are. And so there are areas where we are deeply broken all the way to the core, right? Biblically, biblical authors, when they talk about the core of who we are, they use the word heart, right? And think about how many times Scripture, when it talks about even all the way down to the core, the book of Jeremiah, it says, the heart is deceitfully wicked, right? Beyond cure, that means self-cure. Beyond cure, who can know it? It's even deceptive. You can't even have full, it's so far deep down below the surface, you don't even have access to it. And it's your own heart, right? Other places speak of this. Proverbs 4 says, uh, above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because it's the very wellspring of life. It's the center of who you are, and it's out of that heart. Remember, Jesus said a lot of things about it's out of the heart 
You know, the Pharisees were oftentimes concerned with exterior things, and he kept drilling into this whole heart issue. He says, it's not, it's not what goes into a person that makes him unclean or unacceptable for God, but it's what comes out. It's this heart component. It's the below-the-surface iceberg parts of our life. There's a, if you've, uh, if you've got the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I would encourage you, there's this really cool uh, picture on page. In fact, let me, I think I've got a, I have the list here, at least I'll throw it up on the screens. But he gives this sort of almost like Ten Commandments a picture. Um, we oftentimes underestimate the, the deep, um, almost unconscious imprint of our family of origins. And, and he speaks of this idea that all of us have like behavioral patterns. It could be thinking stuff or things we do, but it's all behavioral patterns. And our behavioral patterns are, are controlled by, by like a series of commands that, that we got from our family. Now these could be, these could have been like uh, unspoken, just sort of assumed, just in, implicit command, or they could have been actually stated. This is, you know, this is what we believe. And um, he gives this list of, you know, things like money, conflict, sex, grease and loss, expressing anger, all these different areas of what, what were the expressed verbally or, or inferred commands, rules, I think of it that way, in my house with regard to these. I mean, just a couple. If it was conflict, was the command avoid conflict at all costs because it's just too messy? Was it... Uh, don't get people mad at you, you know, be this kind of people pleaser where you just kind of keep everything and, you know, sound and, oh, no, don't worry, and you sweep it under the rug. Was it a loud, angry, constant fighting is, is normal, and that's acceptable? Were those, were one of those one of the commands? Or, or how about expressing anger? Um, anger, is, or, uh, anger is dangerous and bad, never engage in it. Uh, explode in anger maybe to make a point. Maybe the command was sarcasm is an acceptable way to deal with your anger and your frustration. Um, what if it was feelings or emotions? What, were, what was the rule in your house? It might have been, um, you're not allowed to have certain feelings. There are certain feelings which are out of bounds for you, inappropriate, and you shouldn't have them. You shouldn't feel that way. Maybe it's your feelings aren't important. That was the law. Or maybe it was uh, reacting with your feelings without thinking is okay. <laughs> because so often these rules rule our behavior, sometimes we know them, and we could say, but sometimes we don't even know the degree to which they are there. So how do I identify in what ways my family has shaped me? Um, we want to give you at the end of tonight, all, all of our ushers are going to be at the doors here when we, when we close in, in a little bit, a, a tool. Uh, remember week one, we gave you that whole like inventory tool. Hope you've had a chance to take that. You can find it online. This is a more, much more simple tool, and in a few minutes, they'll be at the doors and grab one on your way out. But this is something called a genogram, okay? A genogram basically looks at family tree, like parents, siblings, and all this stuff, and, and it just asks questions about them. And so, and so there's like 13 questions and stuff like, you know, like what would be four adjectives you would use to describe each family member? Um, how, was, how was conflict handled in your home, you know? Uh, how were gender roles understood in authority? Um, were there any family secrets? I don't mean ones that, I mean, it's not, oh, but I knew it wasn't a secret. No, no, no. I mean, things which were sort of considered, we don't talk about this. Were there any losers in your family? Were there heroes in your family? Just all of these questions that, that, that help you just get an assessment of what were those unspoken rules, those commandments that, that I lived with? 
and I didn't even consciously think of it, that now I've brought into as an adult, I've brought into all of my relationships, I've brought into my work environment. I, I just, those are my expectations that I bring into my life. Um, and so this is a tool that, again, I would really encourage you guys to, to make use of to say, how could I gain perspective of what those pieces are so that the Spirit of God has more things to transform in me? Let me give you uh, the next blank to fill in on your outline. Because the question we ask is, okay, I go back into my past, and there's more than family of origin. I mean, there's other big events that have shaped us, right? We're just talking about one piece of it here tonight. So I go back and I look at that. I gain perspective. Um, I show new areas of, uh, of depths in my life that maybe I wasn't even aware of. Okay, so what? Like, what do I do with that? Now I just have got a lot more, I'm, I'm just aware of more junk, right? How do, I, how do I take that next step? Discipleship requires putting off the unhealthy patterns of our family of origin and being reparented. Being reparented, which is relearning how to do life God's way in Jesus' new family. Do you remember um, sometimes when, when Jesus, remember Jesus had this interaction with this guy named Nicodemus? He was this religious leader, and, and he's asking questions. He comes and sees him at night, uh, and he's asking questions. You remember Jesus' response to him? He says, you know, what do I have to do to, you know, kind of get in, to have a relationship with God? And he says, you have to be, what, born again. He's speaking of rebirth. Why is it that Paul, when you go to the New Testament, when he talks about what it means to walk with God, he says, he, he uses the language of adoption. You were adopted into the family of God. Um, Mark 3.33, Jesus, this story is told where Jesus is in a house. His mother and brothers and, and sisters come to him, and people inside say, hey, your, your mother and brother and sisters are outside. And he says, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? Those who follow my commands. He's, he's doing this really weird thing culturally, and it's not so offensive for us. It's very offensive for this, this world. He's saying there's a higher level of family than blood, and it has to do with the kingdom of God. The critical factor that most significantly determines my new identity as a Christian is not the blood of my biological family, but it's the blood of Christ. As I am in a new family, I'm given a new, this is the kind of language the New Testament talks about, a new name, right? We call ourselves Christians, right? I'm, I'm given a new name. It, it uses language of, I have an inheritance, right? This is Roman adoption language. This is concepts of what happens when a person was adopted into a Roman family. Um, even Scripture speaks of partaking in the divine nature and living in a confidence as a child of God. Mark 10, 37, Jesus says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. These are some of those hard teachings that people are kind of, ugh, you know, they recoiled against because it's so extreme. But he's saying it's the only hope. You can keep doing family your way. You can assume the way to live, the way to do family, the way to do life, the way to do career is what you know from your family of origin. Or you can do this new thing, the family of God, in which there's new life new relationship. There's adoption. You're actually infused with the very life and the power of the Spirit of God. The New Testament world is, is unable to even imagine living a life apart from the context of, of healthy church life. 
It speaks of this is God's family. Brothers and sisters is the language it uses. And this is, what, this is one of the challenges in our culture, right? What happens when a person is in church and they get offended by something that someone happens or they don't like this aspect of the teaching or they don't like this mission? They go somewhere else, right? And so we have this, this, this culture which, is, which doesn't have a concept of I need to be reparented in the family of God. And the place that I find that community is the local church. And I commit to them like a family. Uh, you know, Dick Foth, you've probably heard him say this. He said this like a hundred times. I always think of this phrase. You know, he says when he was a seven-year-old boy in a British boarding school in South India is when he became a follower of Jesus. And he says, I gave all that I knew of myself to all that I knew of God, right, as a seven-year-old. As we become believers, both of those categories had better expand. And see, wisdom would say, expand Expand what you know of yourself. I gave all of myself to all I knew of him. Do you know more of yourself now? But have you stopped? Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. That's talking the below the surface, right? But a man of understanding will draw it out. Isn't that cool? Wisdom says you had better look at your family of origin. You had better look at your past. Because it's there whether you like it or not. It's a matter of will you excavate it to let Christ bring the scalpel to it and transform it. I know people who have lived long lives and are fools. I know people who have lived long lives and are wise. So it's not age, right? How do I be a wise person? It's not age. Um, I, both of them have made dumb choices, so it's not a perfect record. I know very educated people who are fools and who are wise, and uneducated people likewise, so it's not education. Um, and look at the example of, you know, King Solomon. I'm just amazed at this guy who, who can have such precise wisdom when it comes to conducting, you know, national affairs and absolute foolishness later in his own personal life. Here's, I think, the key. Gordon MacDonald uh, wrote a book called... Um, uh, It'll come to me in a couple minutes, and I'll tell you. Uh, the Resilient Life. And in this book, he, he talks about, he says, this is, this is a kind of an author, Christian leader, been around, blown it, made a lot of bad decisions, but is a wise person. And he says, here's the difference between a fool and a wise person. He says that the wise person looks at their past and says, what did that mean? And they squeeze everything out of it. He was a track star. He ran at CU. He was on their track team there, and he tells the story of one track coach he had. He said, um, every victory or every loss, after every single meet, he would come to me, and he would say, Gordon, over the weekend, usually it was on like a Friday or Saturday, he said, over the weekend, I want, I want you to, to ring everything out of this event and tell me what happened on Monday. Ring it out. This is like a, like a picture of having a cloth that's wet. Ring the meaning out of it. And so what he means by this idea of, of, of a wise person is, is I have to wring things out of the past, out of my family, out of the experiences, for meaning to acquire insight and wisdom. If the local church is the place where um, I am in a real sense uh, reparented by God, how much wisdom would it be to try to go it alone? See, what if, what if we were a community which, which really sought after so much trust and vulnerability that, that, that we were actually okay if, if, if someone shared with us those, those deep, dark, scary, unearthed parts 
below the surface. What, what if we were a community of people that were so committed that, that if I told you something that I thought, you know, is just embarrassing, it's, it's shameful, you know, Genesis 3, I'm just ashamed by it. And what if that didn't change your love for me at all? What if you loved me the exact same amount? Do you think a community like that would change Fort Collins? Yeah. Do you think I'd change Loveland or Alt or Windsor? Yeah. What if we were a community of people who said, Brokenness and vulnerability is a value of the kingdom. In fact, I remember Jesus talking about something like that in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are many people who are broken. What if we actually said that was okay and church was the safest place to bring the reality of who you are? You guys, that would change the world. I'm going to ask our, our, our worship team to come up. And I want us to not just have a wrap-up song. I want us to, each one of us individually, kind of, you know, shut our eyes, close things out, and go to God and ask some questions of, God, what are the areas in my life that I have been completely unaware of? They're there. They've always been there. If I don't do anything about it, they will always be there unchanged. But is there anything in my life, Jesus, that you want to change, you want to transform, you want to rebuild, so that I, I, I take the wisdom of what Paul said, learn from the patriarchs. Learn from your family. Ring out the past of everything that's there, all the meaning, and then pursue me and, and dare to be reparented by the God of the universe. Dare to enter a family and a community which can transform layers and levels of you which you have been so ashamed of or you've just barely, you haven't even thought about him in years. But they're there. They raise their head in conflict. They raise their head in the closest relationships that you're in. And you hope no one sees them. You don't even want to think about it. But what if, just what if, hypothetical, what if God could change him? What if he wanted all of you? That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? The biblical word for that is overcomer. <laughs> One who overcomes. Would you please stand with me? We're going to sing a song. And again, I would ask you, in the quietness of your own heart, you can sing along. The reason we are overcomers is because the one who has overcome. Let's sing to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for our pasts. Thank you for family. God, it is a beautiful dream that you came up with. And Lord, maybe this week some of us might even need to make a phone call to say, thank you so much for how you poured this into my life. Help us to honor and respect what you have created, despite all of the brokenness, God. But thank you, too, that you, you reparent us, you adopt us into the family of God, and then you go about resetting broken bones and healing and while scars remain, God, thank you that you also do not waste hurt, but you transform it, God. And you, and, and you allow beauty to rise from ashes. So we want to be the kind of people, God, who will lay ourselves on your table and allow a scalpel to hit a heart to bring beauty. That's our longing. Thank you for calling us to a gorgeous future. And help us to do the work with the power of your Holy Spirit of looking at the past in order to go forward. 
We did that tonight in communion. Every time we do it, we proclaim your death in the past until you come again in the future. Thank you that you are a God of all time and that you fuse all time together. So help us to live as servants and followers, apprentices of your son, who live transformed, spirit-empowered lives, God. Not perfect, but seeking your grace in deep vulnerability and a willingness, God, a heart willing to sacrifice anything for you. We know you honor that prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Our prayer team will be up front. If you would like prayer, we would consider it an honor. We'll see you this weekend. Go in the grace and the love, the comfort of God. Love you so much.